0: Hi, I'm Wendy Dean.
1: And I'm Simon Talbot, and this is Moral Matters.
0: Today, we're gonna be talking to Andrea Levine. She's a critical care doctor in Baltimore, Maryland, and she's in charge of a training program for critical care fellows.
1: Today, she's speaking about her experience with COVID um, as COVID hit Baltimore pretty hard. And uh, it's worth noting that this was recorded way back in December, the week before the first vaccine doses were given to those in the United States.
0: So it was a different time, Um, but uh, a lot of it hasn't changed. So let's give a listen.
1: Andrea, welcome to Moral Matters. Um, I guess we should start by, uh, perhaps you can give our listeners a little background as to um, what you do and where you're from.
2: Yeah. Thank you, Simon, for having me here. I really appreciate it. Um, I am a pulmonary critical care doctor at the University of Maryland. Um, I'm also the program director for our critical care medicine fellowship here. I spend most of my time working in the medical intensive care unit and a smaller fraction of my time doing a post ICU recovery in a COVID recovery clinic. And then a fraction of the time, obviously running the critical care fellowship here.
1: Wow. So you've had a lot of training. Yes. (laughs) How many years into practice are you?
2: Uh, I finished my fellowship training about two and a half years ago.
1: And then uh, I'm imagining things have been pretty busy as um, COVID arrived not too soon after that. Yeah,
2: I um, did sort of an in-between year as a super fellow faculty member and then COVID arrived six months into my first year as a true faculty member. It was definitely not the way I anticipated starting my career as a pulmonary critical care physician.
1: Of course. Tell us a little bit about um, how COVID-19 came and affected your work.
2: Um, I distinctly remember the end of February kind of hearing about COVID-19 through Asia um, and um, sort of wondering when this was going to come to the United States Uh, I actually had some travel planned, a work conference planned at the beginning of March. And I remember standing in my kitchen with my wife, wondering if we should start to cancel our plans because a couple of cases were popping up here and there. And the day before the flight, we canceled the trip out of uh, abundance of precaution. Um, And then quickly, I sort of transitioned into this place of, uh, you know, send me to the front lines, put me in, I want to be there. And as I watched the numbers go up and up in places like Seattle and in New York, I really had this itch to get to the front lines I actually begged my boss to let me take a leave of absence from work to go up to New York for a couple of weeks. And he kind of had to say, just hold on, you're going to be needed here. Trust me, just hold on. Um, And as the weeks went on, I slowly watched the cases go up and up and up here in Baltimore. Um, And I spent a couple of weeks working in our COVID-19 unit. And that was uh, an unforgettable experience. I will say, you know, we were very early on in the pandemic We didn't have a lot of the therapies we have now. When I look back at how we cared for those patients and some of the interventions we used, sort of comical, that we were using hydroxychloroquine and zinc and those things. Um, But it definitely kept me busy, uh, and it was challenging for sure. And simultaneously trying to manage my fellows who were you know, early on into their fellowship and they themselves learning how to be critical care providers, um, and kind of going through this pandemic. And I think very much also having that put me in coach mentality, but having to balance, um, satiating their desire to be at the front lines, care for critically ill patients, but also making sure that they were kept safe.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, can you talk about the challenges that you experienced during that time? What are the things that, um, you struggled with, and, and also the things that, that you didn't struggle with, the things that were done well?
2: I think, um, you know, there was a, a long period of time where I felt like we had no idea how to manage these patients. And you, the patients were getting sicker and coming in faster than I was getting any information or guidance on what to actually do with them. Um, you know, a lot of our information was coming through Twitter or Facebook or, um, you know, Press briefings that were being dropped. You didn't have sound literature, sound research that was really guiding your management. And I felt like I was couldn't sleep at night because I was having to stay up to date on what was happening. And you know, my colleagues from around the country and even around the world would have um, uh, text threads going back and forth about what people were doing in different states and how to manage these people. And I was compulsively sort of checking these things to see what was being done at other places that were maybe one or two or three days ahead of us in this process. And then I sort of had to take a step back at some point, and this was maybe early April. There was some some editorials that started to come out in some of the leading journals for pulmonary and critical care kind of saying, you know, we have evidence-based medicine. We know how to manage patients with acute respiratory distress syndrome, and we should not ignore what we've been doing for the last decade or two decades or three decades. We should not ignore evidence-based medicine in favor of social media-based medicine. And that was really comforting to me, actually, because I felt like, wait, I actually do know what I'm doing. I know how to manage ARDS. I know how to manage critical illness. The COVID-19 part is still a bit of a mystery, but the rest of it, I actually know what I'm doing. And I think once I kind of changed my frame of of mind there, I had a lot more confidence in the way I was practicing medicine. And I felt like, okay, this is what I did go into medicine to do. And I do have the tool set to do it. And I am capable and competent to care for these patients. So I think that was a challenge. Um, I think uh, there were a lot of challenges related to PPE and in terms of protecting yourself. Um, We always had plenty of PPE here at Maryland. I'm very, very grateful for that. Um, but I, I do think we were cautious about the use of PPE, you know, whereas before you would take a mask on every time you walked in a personal a, a patient's room and take it off and throw it in the garbage can. I think we were all being very cautious about how often we changed our masks and when we threw things away. Um, and I think just in general, being incredibly cautious about making sure we were properly donned and wearing all the appropriate equipment, properly doffing and taking things off so that we didn't, ultimately infect ourselves. Um, and I have had several patients where they would cardiac arrest within the walls of our biocontainment unit and kind of having to deal with knowing that you had to first put your mask on before you could help the person sitting next to you. You know, it's like sort of like when you're on the airplane and they say put your oxygen on first before you put it on your child or your neighbor. I couldn't just get up and run to a code because I first had to put on all the all the equipment, the appropriate equipment. So I think that was challenging. And then just learning to do medicine in that kind of equipment. You know, I I do a lot of teaching in my practice. I'm in an academic center. I work with fellows and residents and interns. I pride myself on being able to teach at the bedside. And when I go through a procedure, really talking it out loud with my team. And it's a different process when you're wearing a um, elastomeric mask or you're wearing um, you know, any sort of mask becomes much more challenging to talk to your team, but also to talk to the patient who you're trying to communicate with. So I think, I think those were some early challenges we had. Um, but like I said, I, I feel grateful that, um, we did have the personal protective equipment we needed. We did have some modifications at the hospital where they built biocontainment units, which I think made us generally feel better, we did have people who were helping and supervising you donning and doffing, so you felt like you were in the appropriate amount of equipment and you were um, you were safe and you were you know dressed appropriately uh, to go in and see the patients. Um, and I do think people who came forward and said, you know, listen, do the evidence-based medicine that you know. Uh, don't ignore what you've learned for the last decades of your career and and basically just do the right thing for the patient. I think people who came forward and wrote those editorials gave me a peace of mind.
1: I think, I think that's super interesting that, um, you know, sometimes when we panic, we forget all the things that we should know. And we've all done it. We've all, we've all panicked and, and forgotten these things. And so I'm fascinated to hear you say that that was one of the um, comforting ways to deal with it. What are the things that you see going into the second or third surge, admittedly with a vaccine, hopefully, um, that we can do better or differently?
2: I I think that we've done things better already, in a sense. I mean, I, I think, again, speaking just from my hospital, we did sort of start to prepare as we saw the numbers go up. We have... You know, um, constructed biocontainment units. We actually have a, a, a modular intensive care unit that's just outside of my window here uh, in the parking lot of our office. So we sort of built additional beds, uh, additional space for these patients, um, and additional areas to to take care of them and accommodate them. Um, I think we've ensured that we have enough and more than enough personal protective equipment so that providers can feel safe taking for the pa- taking care of the patients. Um, I think we have more therapies available now for the patients and better clinical trials to study these therapies and um, papers that have been published in actual journals, not just on Twitter or as preprints. Pre-published? They've been, yeah. yeah, they've been peer-reviewed and actually published. Um, and so I think those things are helpful. I don't think the vaccine is going to dramatically change things right now. You know, as we kind of are talking about before we started, um, how much protection it confers is still not 100% clear. I mean, we think it's 90%, 95% effective, which is great. uh, But how long your immunity lasts, we don't know. Um, And so I think in terms of needing to protect yourselves and wear the personal protective equipment and just be cautious about the patients that you're caring for and how you're doing it, I think that will have to remain Um, And just making sure that we continue to kind of protect our trainees and our healthcare providers and all the people who are in the hospital will still have to be a top priority. And it's going to take months to get enough people vaccinated uh, for the vaccine to really be this holy grail of saving us from COVID-19.
1: Thank you. Well, we're on a podcast called Moral Matters, and um, you were aware of the concept of moral injury prior to the pandemic, and Wendy and I spoke to you about it uh, prior to all of this. What is it about the term moral injury and about moral injury itself that makes sense to you?
2: I remember the first time I read the works that you and Wendy had written uh was maybe three years ago as a fellow, and uh I remember kind of reading about, you know, engaging in or witnessing acts or behaviors that either directly um oppose kind of your own moral beliefs. Or that are um, deeply opposed to or in conflict to things that really are at the core of who you are morally and that so many of those things are happening in medicine and what the impacts uh, what what, what psychological long-term impact that has on people in medicine medical trainees And I think that's really what spoke to me. You know, I I remember when I was training to go into medicine and I said to my mom, I never want business to become a part of my life as a doctor. And And that (laughs) was obviously not a reality, right? I mean, you don't get any training in business, but it quickly permeates into your practice as a physician. And um, taking into account the administrative parts of the hospital, the hospital as a healthcare system the hospital as a business, um, I think that quickly permeates into who you are as a doctor. So I think reading some of the works that you guys wrote about how this deviates from your true moral beliefs and how that deviation, uh, either deviations that you've had to make yourself or, or watching others do things that really deviates from what you believe at your moral core, how that impacts us, that really spoke to me. And I think that probably by the time you've reached fellowship or certainly as an attending, Every one of us in healthcare has probably had that experience.
1: Yeah, I think that's true. Can you give some, um, of course, um, some practical examples where you see that happening um, in everyday practice, particularly in the type of work that you do?
2: Um, yeah, I mean, I think that, um, you know, I think a little bit about COVID. Some COVID-related examples, you know, I I think there was a very short period of time where there was scarcity of resources. Um, Specifically, we had a scarcity very transiently of our dialysis machines. Um, And I remember getting phone calls from outside hospitals trying to transfer patients in. And this was in the spring where we saw lots of multi-organ system dysfunction from patients, and many of them required dialysis. And we really had to be... um, cautious and diligent about accepting patients based on whether or not they were likely to need dialysis and whether or not we had dialysis machines. And so I was having to participate in and and be part of discussions about transferring patients to higher levels of care based on the availability of certain resources. And I think that was a discussion I never really thought in the United States I was going to be part of. Um, because I knew the patients needed a higher level of care. I knew that they needed to be an academic center. I knew that they'd benefit from being in a tertiary or quaternary center, but we simply didn't have the resources necessarily to treat them. And I think that, and that sort of went against morally and ethically what I felt was needed for the patient, right? I knew they needed the care, but we certainly, we simply didn't have the resources to treat them. And, I think,
1: and that's at a hospital that has incredible resources.
2: Yeah, yeah. And I think that we continue to have to make those decisions all over the country and, and really all over the world, in that, um, you know, we have simply a limitation of hospital beds. You have a limitation of intensive care unit beds. You know, you hear about hospitals uh, being 100% occupied in their intensive care unit at this point. You hear about states whose ICUs are 100% occupied at this point and having to make decisions about patients who are really sick and would otherwise absolutely qualify for and benefit from and be accepted into an intensive care unit and having to say we simply cannot treat you we cannot accommodate you here Um, those kinds of allocation of resources discussions those are things that happen all the time in developing countries but are very unusual to have i think in a in a developed country in an academic medical center and it it, it really rattles you a little bit, right? Because you're, you're a doctor and all you want to do is provide the best care to patients, but you're limited in the care you can provide because the resources at this point are scarce. Um, that hasn't happened to me independent of COVID-19, but I think that that is certainly what's happening all over the country right now.
1: And, you know, of course, the COVID pandemic has exacerbated some of the problems we already had. There were definitely some issues we had before this, and I think it's come into stark reality um, with COVID-19. Are there any, um, times that you've been working where you think to yourself, boy, this is, I I wish the public knew this. I wish people knew this is going on or wish that, you know, without being too pointed, um, that this is something that I'm struggling with.
2: I think probably every minute of every day, I wish that, um, I think about sometimes, uh, like in Vietnam, when bodies were coming home from Vietnam and young men were coming home. And um, part of the way that the country moved towards ending the war was that the media filmed the bodies coming off of the airplanes. I mean, I am too young to, to have been around then, but at least this is kind of what my parents tell me. This was um, a gut-wrenching thing to do is to sit around at night with your family and watch bodies kind of coming off of these airplanes. And I think when people watched for the first time, what was really happening, and they could really, um, they could really see and sort of quantify and uh, th- this horrible thing that was happening somewhere else, people really stood up and did the right thing and, and moved towards ending the war. I think if a camera crew could come and follow medical providers, they would see what it's like to be caring for patients in the middle of a global pandemic. And I think that would be at all levels of the care that we're providing
0: one of the things that i really have a hard time with is that healthcare workers are being asked to do multiple jobs in this. One is to take care of patients and the other is to bear the burden of bearing witness. And that is, you know, because families aren't able to come in to the hospital and be present, we are asked to stand in for pa- for families and, and to bear witness uh, to this tragedy without being able to share it widely.
2: Yeah, I think that's, um, I think that's absolutely true. You know, we are wearing multiple hats during the time that you're working. Uh, that hat is obviously care provider, intensive care unit, you know, physician, but also as, as you said, Wendy, I mean, I can't tell you how many patients I've had, unfortunately, that have died with no family member anywhere nearby, the closest we can do is put their family members on Zoom to watch from afar as their loved one dies in the hospital. Um, But I've also seen babies that are born without their fathers present or grandparents present or anyone else that's really present. And then babies taken from their mothers who are sick in the intensive care unit and spending the first couple of weeks of their lives in NICUs without any contact with their parent. And then coming home after weeks to a parent who never even saw them born or a grandparent. And so the doctor having to stand in in many ways as... Uh, you know, physician, but also family member um, support system, and not just the doctors. Actually, a lot of it falls upon the nurses who are at the bedside, probably more so on them. For us, we've been really fortunate that our case managers and our social workers and our palliative care team are also willing to contribute to um, wearing that hat. But so I think that is really challenging. And then just kind of bearing witness to the patients who are dying, getting sick in general, being away from their family members, even if you're not having to stand in as their support, just kind of watching how many patients are getting sick and dying. Um, A year ago this time, we would not have seen nearly as many patients suffering from and dying from acute respiratory distress syndrome. Um, So it's just this massive bolus of patients that are sick and dying. And then I think then you still have to go home and leave your shift and be a member of society And kind of struggle with what everyone else in the world is struggling with right which is i can't go out i can't see any of my friends and family i haven't hugged my parents in nine months i haven't traveled anywhere i have no sense of normalcy Uh, and so then you kind of have to uh, deal with those same feelings that the rest of the world is struggling with
1: before covid there were things that were troubling for people as well Um, and going forward i'm sure there are going to be things when hopefully all this is over, that we're still all struggling with. Um, Can you tell us and our listeners a little bit about what you would see about the perfect healthcare environment? What should it look like?
2: Um, I think the easiest answer to that is that everyone should have access to healthcare, which seems pretty simple, but is not even close to where we are today for all sorts of different reasons. I think people should have confidence in their healthcare providers, which is also not even close to where we are today. And, and that has to come through building trust uh, from the healthcare system, building trust and the patients kind of believing that we truly are there to treat them and, and looking out for their best interest, uh, which I think is true, but but there's a lot of distrust, I think, uh, in the healthcare system. So my hope is overall people have access to healthcare and that they're comfortable enough to, to access it because they, they feel confident in their providers. But I also think, and I'm seeing this some in the post-ICU clinic that I run and the post-COVID uh, clinic that I manage, is that I do think that we have to come together and provide more multidisciplinary care to patients and really put the patients at the center of this care. So almost like a medical home or just patient-centric care where we are working together with other providers, whether they're other clinicians like nephrologists or cardiologists, and really working together to provide the best care for the patient in a multi-organ system approach. And or including people in this care like physical therapy, occupational therapy, palliative care, psychology, and really caring for the patient in a more holistic manner and kind of breaking down the silos of how we currently care for patients.
1: I think I think you answered the question I'm about to ask with that last answer, but let me ask it in a more directed way. You mentioned that we need to get patients back to trusting their doctors and trusting their clinicians and recognizing that they have their best interest at heart all the time. How do we go about doing that better? How do we go about regaining and rebuilding that trust?
2: I think you start by doing the right things for the patients uh, 100% of the time. I think you acknowledge when you don't know the answer to the patient. I don't think that that is a um, a flaw necessarily. I think it's just being honest and having an honest dialogue with the patient. I also think it's okay to acknowledge to the patient that there's distrust in the healthcare system and that this distrust is founded in a, a historical uh, issues that come to uh, the way the healthcare system often treats people who are underserved come from disenfranchised backgrounds i think it's okay to acknowledge that to patients and then i think it's okay just to say our intention is to do the best thing we can for you provide you the best quality of care and that we want to work together to do that and um and i think that's kind of a start um is having that honest conversation, then I think, kind of providing this this multidisciplinary care where you're you're treating the patient as a person.
1: This next question's maybe a little bit unfair, but I'm going to ask it anyway. How do we reconcile the business aspects of healthcare with the purely medical aspects of healthcare?
2: I don't know if I know the answer to that, Simon. Um, I guess I try still not to let business permeate too much into the way I care for patients. You know, I, um, I think I'm reasonable about the testing that I order, the labs that I order the workup that I order. Um, but I'm not thinking about it so much in terms of the cost. And I'm certainly not thinking about it in terms of the cost to the healthcare system. I think about it in terms of the cost to the patient. If the patient's about to have to incur a, a large fee, I try to be the most reasonable, thoughtful um pragmatic about the testing and stuff that i do because i want the patients not to be bankrupt by their health care but i i I just can't really prioritize knowing that a test is going to cost hospital system or the insurance company x number of dollars so i'm not going to order it i think Mm -hmm. if it's the right test to do to get a diagnosis or the right intervention to do to treat the patient then we should advocate for them to get that test or that treatment. And that may mean talking to their health insurance. It may mean uh, petitioning to the hospital system. Um, But I don't think it means favoring the needs of the healthcare system or the hospital over your patient.
0: So let me ask this a little bit. um, Again, it's maybe a little bit of an unfair question. But um, you said earlier that we need to help patients trust the system, that that trust has broken down. And I wonder two things about that. What do you think has broken that trust? And what do you think maybe our hospital systems need to do to rebuild it? I think physicians and and clinicians in general are trying really hard and doing their best to rebuild that trust one person at a time. But it seems to me like it's a slightly bigger issue
2: um, I think a lot of the trust is been broken, uh, based on historical issues. So, uh, here in Baltimore, I guess there was a long period probably in history and I'm sure the same is true in Boston and New York and other places, but where, um, poorer, um, people who had, uh, were more socioeconomically disenfranchised people who were African American, people who were Hispanic, they were um, sort of enrolled in or engaged in, in research, and this was long before the days of doing research in the very um, protective manner that we do it now, but there was a whole population of people, I think, in this country and, and, uh, and all over the country that we enrolled in research and we sort of capitalized on the fact that they were poor or we capitalized on the fact that their medical knowledge was lesser than other people's. And I think that um, we abused them in that way. And as a result, I think there's a very large population of people in this country who don't trust the healthcare system. They don't trust medicine because they feel like they were taken advantage of, that their uh, the color of their skin or their socioeconomic status made them a target for experimental therapies and for research. And that is true. That happened. And I think we have to acknowledge that There was a period in medicine that that did happen and that that's not how we practice medicine or practice research anymore. And I think we have to, um, we have to be very diligent about providing the same high quality of medicine to every single person, independent of their race or their sex or their socioeconomic status or where they come from or their pedigree. And I think if we really do that, then we will slowly move the needle towards people trusting the healthcare system again. And I think you have to acknowledge that people don't trust the healthcare system. So I think coming kind of back to covid a little bit, there will be a large population of people who probably are not going to stand up and wait in line to get the covid vaccine the first day that it comes out. Because I think there's going to be a large population of people who don't trust the research, the healthcare system, the science that's gone into it because of Uh, historical problems with science and research, like I said, and I think we have to acknowledge that and say, that's okay. And we have to kind of model good uh, healthcare delivery and good scientific practice. So we have to continue to offer the vaccine to all patients, uh, regardless of the color of their skin or their demographics. We have to be patient with people as they come to realize the importance of this vaccine, for example, I think we have to, as doctors and healthcare providers, we have to model the probably the right thing to do, which is getting the vaccine um, and show people that it's safe. And And I think, again, it's okay to acknowledge with your patients that, um, that there is probably some distrust of the healthcare system. You acknowledge that they have that and that's okay. And that every step of the way, you're just going to do the right thing for them. And I think if you do that, you will find that even people who are distrusting of you as their doctor, you as their healthcare provider, um, or of the healthcare system will slowly warm to you and say, wow, this patient really is looking out for my best interests. This patient really is listening to me, hearing my concerns, hearing my worries, hearing why my family and generations of people in my family have overall not trusted the healthcare system. And I think slowly you shift kind of the attitude of people to trusting us more as their
1: doctors. So, along those lines, Andrea, how do you see the future of healthcare? Where are we headed? What are things going to be like 10 years from now, 20 years from now, or or 50 years from now?
2: I hope very much that we're headed into a place where um, healthcare is universal. I hope that it's not a privilege. I hope that it's not limited to people who can afford it. I hope that it's not limited to people who don't have any pre existing medical conditions. I hope that healthcare is something that we are able to give every single person in this country and, and elsewhere, but focusing on this country, that healthcare is just essentially a given. And I hope that there's um, a healthcare system where your quality of care is completely independent of your salary of your position in the country and of the color of your skin. I I hope that we move in that direction. Um, I, I think that'll be a process. I think that'll take a long time to get to that that point. But I think we're seeing sort of a shifting in at least what people are wanting in healthcare. I think um, perhaps with a change in the administration coming into January, there'll be a move a little bit more in that direction, which I think will be good. Um, but I do think, you know, as I said before, we have to move healthcare to focus more on the patient. And I think the way we provide healthcare right now does not necessarily do that. You know, having a patient come in and see five or six different providers who have no communication with each other, who are making recommendations to the patient without taking any consideration into account of what the other providers are recommending, um, is the wrong way to do it. I, I think that's not patient centric. You know, it's having patients travel long distances to get healthcare that's low quality, that is um, that is not unified, and is not thinking about the. The whole patient. Um, It's just thinking about your very narrow individual piece of the the patient that you're caring for.
0: But I think that that requires a system that values that cross-communication and allows time and space for that to happen.
2: Yeah, and also a system that technologically is set up to do that, right? We're still suffering with a healthcare system where I cannot necessarily see the notes that you've written about a patient you've seen Uh, in a different hospital. You know, I'm having to spend a lot of time going into and digging through different parts of the healthcare record to try to figure out, well, what did this other provider at some other Baltimore hospital say? Or what did this provider in New York say before the patient moved here to Baltimore? And that takes a lot of time. And that time is coming away from providing the actual hands-on, talking to the patient, touching the patient, patient care. So right now, the infrastructure is not set up necessarily to do that. And that will have to change, you know, whether it's some sort of universal medical record. In a way, it's like the VA that's used the same electronic medical record and it's a universally used EMR all over the country. In a way, that's a better way to do it because at least then we can communicate as providers with each other.
1: That comes up a, a lot when people are talking about EHRs because obviously that's one of the critical things that people are using all the time and struggle with. Um, what are the opportunities that you see that we can leverage from the current situation with the pandemic? What are the things that have happened that that, that you think we can do to leverage positive change going forward?
2: I think that um, I think that we have tried to work a little bit more efficiently and effectively together as a healthcare system, even within cities, between cities, and across the country. I remember very early on when there was a projection that there'd be shortage of, me- of mechanical ventilators, for example. There were hospitals saying, you know, we're going to need vents and other hospital systems kind of willing to share their supplies and their resources across different hospital systems. I think we acknowledge that we're kind of in this together right now as a country and that we need to be able to um, provide for and support hospitals when we're able to that maybe have less resources. I don't think that was really happening or, or um, wasn't happening that frequently pre pandemic times. Um, I think probably now for the first time, this concept of moral injury is sort of becoming, um, you know, commonly discussed. Like when we first talked two years ago or, this was a term that required a lot of explanation and i think now it's becoming more obvious the parallels between healthcare workers and military personnel you know i think this idea of being on the front lines is now very obvious even to um, non-healthcare providers you know, that our families and our friends, I think, can see us as, as frontline workers very much in the same way you would see your, your neighbor who is deployed to be on the frontline in the military service. And so I think the pandemic has shed a lot of light onto this idea of moral injury, which existed before COVID-19 and will continue to exist after COVID-19, but hopefully is also opening people's eyes to the idea that meditative breathing and yoga is not a sufficient strategy to manage moral injury and that we really have to be looking out for our trainees and our healthcare providers, because if they weren't having moral injury before COVID-19, they absolutely will be in the setting of and post COVID-19.
1: Thank you very much, Andrea. This is um, this is really uh, amazing to have the opportunity to speak to you, even if we can't do it in person. And... Um, you know these kind of insights. I think are very helpful for people to understand, especially people that are, you know, stuck at home, working in an office, and and aren't seeing what's going on out there right now. So, so thank you for those things.
0: Yeah, thank you. Yeah, of course.
2: Yeah, it's a it's a pleasure to be here with you guys. I think this is a hugely important topic. Uh, I think that what's happening inside the hospital, like I said, I wish that we could have a camera crew following us around in some ways so that you people could see what was happening. What it's like from the patient's perspective and the healthcare worker's perspective and that's at all levels the doctor the nurse the social worker it is absolutely a challenge and i think most of us really can't or don't have the venue to verbalize what it's like to be practicing healthcare right now um like i said i think this idea of moral injury it's something we have to start aggressively thinking about because if we don't we're going to have an entire generation of healthcare workers who are really in a bad place and once we finally can come up from air for air, uh, you know, hopefully in the next couple months as the vaccine is distributed, we're going to have a big problem on our hands, a different kind of problem.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thanks again, Andrea. That was just its great to see you. It's great to talk to you. And, um, and we look forward to continuing the conversation.
2: Yeah, you guys as well. Please stay safe.
1: Thank you. You too. One of the things that I think is really interesting about this conversation with Andrea is how much she really loves what she does. And when she began speaking, she told us about how she considered going to New York to take care of patients with COVID. And I think that's just a testament to how much she is committed to doing this work. And so all the more reason, I think, why uh, the moral issues behind it hit pretty hard.
0: Yeah. And, and she's also, she, it was so clear how committed she is, not just to her patients, but also to the trainees that she's bringing along the folks that she's training the next generation. Right. And so, um, she's trying to help them learn to be physicians in the context of this extraordinarily unusual situation. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, trying to manage her own worry about how how, how to take care of these patients who have a, a virus that we've never dealt with. We we don't know what to do. So managing all of those things together at the same time um, is really quite an extraordinary conversation.
1: One of the key issues that Andrea brings up is the fact that a year ago, we were all very worried about covid and our anxiety levels have waned a little bit, and the explicit numbers of people dying and being admitted to hospitals have, have dropped to some degree. And I think uh, people have, uh, are thinking about it and worrying about it less than they were.
0: One of the powerful things that she says is we can't bring cameras into hospitals yeah. to show people how hard it is. Um, but it's important that we remember that the work clinicians are doing is, is still really hard. Um, physically and emotionally. It hasn't changed from the spring, although we're not quite paying attention to it as close as we were. Um, So doctors are still working in full PPE. Um, We're doing better treating COVID, but too many patients are still dying, um, which is really hard for the clinicians who care for them. And it's been a very long surge that they can't rotate out of. Like these clinicians are in it until COVID is over.
1: Right. And that may be a very long time. There's no no telling when the next surge will happen or frankly, when the next pandemic may happen.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think it, for me, it brings up what Hallie Brooks talked about, which is we can't change any of these circumstances, but what we can do is say, thank you. That goes a very long way.
1: Absolutely. I think uh, in addition to that, there's the fact that while we can't change the circumstances, we can change the way that our health system is dealing with those circumstances. And that comes all the way back to the moral injury we speak about all the time.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So thank you all for joining us for Moral Matters.
1: Please continue the conversation on Facebook at Moral Injury of Healthcare.
0: Instagram at Moral Injury.
1: Twitter at WDeanMD and Simon Talbot MD. And our newer handle at Fix Moral Injury.
0: And we're so happy that you're all listening, rating, reviewing, and we're getting a ton of feedback, which we really appreciate.
1: So if you're listening to the podcast, please subscribe to the upcoming episodes, rate us online, review us, talk to your friends about us. We would love to have you join us.
0: Until then, be well. Thank you.